I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Before we start this podcast episode, some words from RHS Director-General Claire Matteson, CBE. The RHS is extremely saddened about the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, our patron since 1952. As the nation mourns, we send our deepest condolences to the royal family and our thoughts are with them all. The Queen became patron of the RHS in 1952 on the death of her father, continuing the royal association with the RHS, which had begun in Victorian times. She took on the role alongside the Queen Mother, who was patron of the RHS for 65 years until her death in 2002. Since Queen Mary's time, the absolute highlight in the RHS's gardening year has been the royal visit to the RHS Chelsea Flower Show. From her teens, the Queen regularly accompanied her parents to Chelsea to the huge delight of the RHS, the nurseries, the designers and the growers and everyone involved with the show. The Queen would arrive at the bullring on the embankment on the Monday afternoon to be greeted by the RHS president who would escort her around the grounds, sharing the gardens and stunning horticultural displays. Past presidents remember these as delightful occasions Many mentioned how knowledgeable and interested she was. She was fascinated by exhibits of flowers, especially roses, and those from tropical and subtropical Commonwealth countries. Peter Harkness of Harkness Roses remembers a conversation with her, knowing that she was shortly to visit Kunming in Yunnan province on an official visit to China. He asked whether she could plant a Rosa volunteer at the VSO station there. He later discovered that she had taken the trouble to inquire whether this was possible and had duly planted a rose in Kunming. The Queen appreciated the importance of gardening to national life and took an interest in the gardens of her royal residences. It has been said that no one knew the gardens of Buckingham Palace better than the Queen. Head gardener Mark Lane would take her a posy of seasonal flowers every Monday morning when she was in residence. Changes and improvements to the gardens were the subject of discussions between her and a succession of head gardeners. By the 21st century, Buckingham Palace, which boasts the largest and most biodiverse private garden in the capital, was home to more than 350 types of wildflower and 150 mature trees. These include the National Plant Collection of Morris mulberry trees, which grow in the gardens both of Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace. In 2021, 
RHS President Keith Weed presented the Queen with a gift of a plant of Rosa, Duke of Edinburgh, to mark what would have been the Duke of Edinburgh's 100th birthday. They walked the borders of the East Terrace of Windsor Castle, where the Queen chose the place to plant the deep pink rose dappled with white in the mixed border. She was keen to hear how gardening had grown so rapidly as a pastime during COVID, providing people with joy whilst helping their mental and physical health. In May of this year, in one of her final public appearances, she came to RHS Chelsea Flower Show, exhibiting her usual enthusiasm for meeting exhibitors and viewing displays as she'd done for so many years. At the Flower Show, the third royal autograph from the Queen, decorated with a painting by botanical artist Gillian Barlow, was unveiled to commemorate the Platinum Jubilee. We're extremely grateful and so proud to have had Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as our patron. She will be greatly missed. We will remember her for her lifelong passion for plants and gardening and the pleasure they gave her. And this is something we will continue to share with as many people as possible. Thanks to RHS Director-General Claire Matteson. You are listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Today's show is all about the enjoyment that our front gardens can provide throughout autumn and winter, no matter their size. We'll be sitting down with RHS Garden Hyde Hall's Matthew Oliver, who's back by popular demand to talk us through how and when to plant bulbs for some glorious spring colour next year. And author, head gardener and fellow podcaster Ben Dark will be taking us for a walk through the flowering front gardens that have captured his imagination over the years. But first, we spoke with the wonderful Frances Tophill. As a horticulturist and garden author, she's an expert when it comes to designing front gardens that remain lush and green throughout even the bleakest months. Any kind of outdoor space I think is incredibly important for us as gardeners, but also just as people. Many of us, myself included, are not blessed with huge spaces. I have an incredibly small front garden and even smaller back garden and they're only rented, so they don't even belong to me. I also have an allotment, which is my safe place and my real love, and a lot more fertile, actually, than the space I have around the house. But I think even if you have a small space or even if you have a space that's not yours and you're just looking after for a friend or, you know, for your landlord, it's still really important to grow things for so many reasons. Number one, it helps wildlife. It helps biodiversity hugely to grow a wide range of plants. Number two, growing things especially like trees, we can capture more carbon from the atmosphere and help do our bit for climate change. But also, more importantly for us, it's a creative outlet, it's a place of joy, it's a place of calm, it's a place of rest, and it's something that can bring some beauty and some produce, some delicious food into our lives. I love seeing the change in colour through the season. Spring is about green and vibrance and brightness and I just absolutely love the colour green. In fact, in my own spaces, I often find that there's more green 
by a long way than any other colour. And sometimes I even find myself removing plants that bring in other colours because they distract from that calming green that I so love. And the fact that green isn't just green, but it's also silvers and blues and bright yellowy greens and dark, shiny greens. There's so much texture in the colour green. So my outdoor spaces are always filled with green. But I love that transition where you start seeing the russets and the burnt oranges and the purples actually coming in as plants turn from summer into autumn. They bring different colours and I love that natural kind of browning off. And it also comes at the same time as flowers I love, like Verbena bonariensis and Rubecchias and those kind of really bright, bold purples, yellows that go so beautifully with the fennel flowers, the bronze fennel foliage, all the trees as they turn orange or red or even just brown. And I think there's something very beautiful about those, especially when you then think about autumn and how we'll have things like squashes and pumpkins coming into season with, again, those orange bright colours. I just, it's a colour combination, purple, orange, yellow and fading green that I really love. But I am going to talk you through how you can keep that green colour going through the winter, avoiding the bleak brownness of bare stems as much as you can by adding interest actually through the colder seasons. There are so many plants that you can use that keep greenery. They're called evergreens and we tend to think of things like conifers, which can be really great. Things like pine, Pinus mugo is fantastic for small spaces, but they don't all have to be conifers. Conifers have a bad reputation and there are lots of evergreens that actually bring colour without being conifers. And for me, things like rosemaries and myrtle are incredibly useful because they have a function as well. They smell incredible. You can use them in your cooking. So Plants like that are really useful for me in the winter. But there are other things like there are box plants, buxus, there's choisier, again with that scented foliage, which is lovely. And also think about smells as you go through into the winter. So things like sarcococca, which has a lovely scented flower in really early spring, late winter. And things like Daphne, Daphne odora or Daphne balua, as we go through the winter and then come out the other side, these incredible sweet floral smells can really bring interest where there may not be much else. But if you only have a small front garden, then I would suggest that you fill it with one or two or maybe a few containers because then you can bring colour into the garden that will welcome you home and welcome your visitors that come to see you over the winter. And there's loads of different plants that you can fill a container with that will bring all year round colour. So a favourite of mine is Mullenbeckia, which will hang over the edges of pots and really soften things. There are also evergreen ferns because you may not have the front of your house in the sun. They'll work really, really well in shade, um, especially with things like the Mullenbeckia that will give amazing textures. But also things like grasses can work really well. There are some evergreen grasses, so like Carex, all different shades. You can get uh, variegated ones or you can get simple ones. Um, they will keep going all the way through the winter and bring a bit of softness to a front garden. But if all else fails and you only have room for one thing and you have a sunny front garden, I would definitely go for rosemary. It's evergreen. But more importantly, every time you brush past the foliage, you'll release the scent. It's supposed to be to 
traditionally lucky to have rosemary on the boundary of your house as well. So if folklore is anything that inspires you in gardening, as it sometimes does me, that is definitely a plant that I would choose. It is a lot of work to establish a really healthy and lush garden. You need to choose the right species. You need to water them until they're established. So giving them a big water early in the morning or late in the evening, not every day, just so those roots can go down deep and access their own water. But if you do all that work, you plan the garden well, you establish the plants well, then you should have a beautiful, lush garden that is still resilient and can cope with the increasingly unpredictable weather that we are experiencing nowadays. To learn more from Frances, pick up a copy of her new book, The Modern Gardener, a practical guide to gardening creatively, productively and sustainably. My north-facing front garden is full of shade-loving plants that stay green all the year round and need just an annual pruning to keep them looking good. I don't give them any fertiliser, I don't water them, they need nothing and they just look after themselves. And presumably, according to RHS research, they soak up lots of pollution. The glorious thing about the plants Francis recommended, such as Moulinbeckia, Myrtle and Rosemary, is they really are very, very low maintenance. It's just a little pruning to do every few years. Otherwise, it's let them do their own thing and you can concentrate on the back garden, confident that your front garden is looking after itself. There's no reason for front gardens to be drab and depressing. There's lots of lovely plants even for winter. Bursts of colour from even the smallest spaces can be enough to lift my mood on one of the cooler days to come. I've got lots of little treasures lurking in my garden. I've got some snowdrops, I've got crocuses, I've got bulbous irises that come up and flower in spring. And the humble bulb is one of the simplest things to get in the ground now. However, there are still ways to maximise your impact as one expert horticulturist is here to tell us. My name's Matthew Oliver. I'm a horticulturist at RHS Garden Hyde Hall. And now we're heading into September and October. It's time to think about planting your bulbs ready for your spring displays next year. So there's a big range of things you can get in the ground. You can go out and buy them from the garden centres now, but you've probably got up to about Christmas, and that's when you'd really want to be finishing it. Otherwise, they haven't got time to put on good root growth and therefore give you the best flower display next spring. So you've got a window of a couple of months to do it. And then in terms of what you could plant, the world is your oyster. I mean, the classic ones, uh, daffodils, tulips. You can be planting snowdrops now if you buy them as bulbs rather than in the green. Yeah, the main ones we do here be daffodils and tulips. And then when it comes to planting them, I prefer to plant them quite deep. Ideally, twice the depth of the bulb, ideally. This depend on what, soil type you're on so if you're on a soil that is quite heavy and sits wet and you plant them deep there is a greater chance of them rotting off sitting wet and rotting off but if you plant bulbs shallow we tend to find here that perhaps flowering performance is affected and they're more likely to be damaged when you're working on beds and boulders and doing other work transplanting things cutting back so we tend to prefer to want to plant deeper get a better root system and a stronger flowering stem.
tulips tend to fall a bit more into the category of sort of seasonal display or bedding, if you want to use that word, where a lot of people will just grow them for one season, then pull them out, get rid of them. But if you want your tulips to last you year after year after year in the ground, then definitely planting deeper is a way to go and choosing tulip bulbs that are larger in size as well. So a lot of people won't know that tulips they're measured by diameter in centimetres. So quite often, if you can buy the ones that are 10 centimetres or up 14 centimetres or up is better, then they're the ones that got more energy in the bulb. And therefore, when you plant them, you're more likely to get a couple of good years flowering out of them. Whereas if you're buying smaller bulbs, they'll probably flower for next spring and then run out of puff unless you're really feeding them and looking after them well. When it comes to daffodils, I think your choice of variety probably dictated a bit more by your conditions. So I personally quite like what we call the cyclaminous types. So they're the ones tend to be shorter and have swept back or reflexed petals. They work quite well for us here at Hyde Hawk. It's a very windy garden, so they're shorter and stockier. They're not damaged as easily by like winter or like spring winds, and then smaller flowers less likely to be damaged as well. Whereas you can get really massive, great big, tall, showy, large flowered, large trumpeted daffodils, and that'd be great if you've got a more sheltered site, a protected, walled-off back garden. Maybe if you want a bit more of a visual wow, they might be the ones to go for. Even if you've only got a small garden, then planting bulbs is definitely something that's achievable. They do really well in pots and you can pack a lot of bulbs into a small pot. And one way of doing this is what we would describe as being like a bulb lasagna. So you can plant different bulbs at different levels in one single pot and that'll give you a really long flowering season in the spring. I do this at home outside the front door, just a couple of small pots, perhaps put the largest bulbs at the bottom, your daffodils, maybe tulips on top. And then at the very surface, the smaller bulbs might do things like crocus or snowdrops. It means they all flower at different times. So every time you come home, you'll be going through the front door and you'll have a bit of colour there. And normally a really drab, boring time of year when it's grey and miserable, you come home and they just put a smile on your face. It looks fantastic. So even if you haven't got a garden or a little postage stamp-sized garden, you can still fit all year round colour in a very small space. Thanks, Matthew. I like a bit of lasagna planting myself. Put in a few small bulbs and bigger bulbs and very big bulbs. You could say that the best bulb is one that looks after itself. You pop it in the ground and it flowers and flowers. So I've got some camassias that do so well at Wisley, narcissi or daffodils that do well anywhere. And I've also invested in some tulips that uh, claim to naturalise. I'm not so sure that tulips do naturalise, but... Um, I've bought the bulbs anyway, so I'm going to see. I'm going to put them in my wildflower meadow and see what happens. You often find lots and lots of bulbs in the soil, and although you may or may not get lots of foliage, you certainly don't get many flowers. And this is a case where the bulbs are either not very good quality, they're too congested, so when they grow in the summer, they can't get enough light and nutrients to form a flower bud, and they are in a state that they won't actually flower. In the wild, they die out or they colonise a new area, but in the garden, they're just getting weaker and weaker, and the best thing to do then is either discard the lot and start again, or dig up the lot, throw away all but the biggest, and replant the biggest after improving the soil with some compost or fertiliser. 
We've been speaking a lot today about how to get the most from our front gardens. But have you ever wondered where the traditional patch of green in front of the home came from? This is one of the questions Ben Dark asked himself as he set about to track and log those tiny green spaces in his new book, The Grove, A Nature Odyssey, in 19 and a half front gardens. As a head gardener, I'm very lucky to work in fantastic large sweeping landscapes with budgets to buy trees, to put in projects, to get rocks shipped down from Wales. But while doing this, I lived in a very small flat in London, as did most of my friends, contemporaries, the people that I was talking to outside the world of horticulture. And away from my professional life, my main interaction with greenery was with other people's greenery. I'm in my 30s and those of us who do own houses don't own houses with vast landscape gardens. We are riding on the tails of other people's plants quite a lot of the time to get our enjoyment. And that can feel slightly upsetting. It could probably put you into a spiral of bitterness, wondering why do they get all these lovely things? But I took the view that actually these plants almost belong to me as much as the people in whose gardens they grew, because I was seeing them every day. I was going past them and they became something of my own, something of my world, just by watching them from the pavement. And that sense grew and grew until I realized there is something to be said for this voyeuristic enjoyment of other people's gardens and the special pleasure we get from that. And the history of the front garden is often as rich as the wildlife that grows within it. My particular street had quite a lot of late Victorian villa houses. These are the ones we'd see quite often, a little bit set back from the street with a hedge, a little bit of garden, and then the front door. And this is quite a new thing. Think about your medieval town. Think about your centre of York or the centre of London. And houses don't have these little spaces, these moments of green between door and street. They open onto the road. And I think that this is a very typical Victorian thing. It goes to that new sense of the sanctity of family life, that turning away from a performative part of the city into the home with the father and the mother and the little children. And that's quite nice to see as you wander along. And then later you come to houses that might have been built in the 20s or in the 50s, and they all have their own particular characteristics. Maybe you go through a 30s suburb and everyone has grown the same privet from the same cuttings, started at the exact same age, and you have a sudden sense of what this place must have been like 70, 80 years ago when it was first occupied and everyone was standing behind their thin little twiggy hedges. Or you see a house that has a load of magnolias and you realise, well, these magnolias probably date from the 50s. There was a big rage for planting the hybrid cross magnolias in that period. And suddenly you've got a little visual history of the area and the street as you wander along. It's a very, very interesting to travel in time as you wander from house to house. The front garden also provides challenges to even the most experienced gardeners. 
by its very nature, it contains challenges. Front gardens aren't places of pure art. They always have a practical component. Particularly in towns and cities, you need a path to the door so your post can get delivered. You need bins and a little bit of concrete so the binman doesn't have to drag them over your lawn. You need somewhere to store a bike, probably. And all of these things create really, really tricky challenges that can be overcome with some creative thinking. And a really expert gardener will start thinking about ways to attractively cover these features, to turn their bin store into a productive winery, to make the railings that are there to, to stop people just wandering in as attractive as the rest of the garden by growing clematis around them, across the top of them. And once that begins, you see the garden in, in three dimensions and start to see it really as a place of interplay between architecture and plant. And then you start seeing, well, actually, I don't have this floor to garden on. I have the floor and the fence and the house itself. And you start thinking about growing things up and out and where you can start casting shadows on the ground and what you can do to clothe your walls. And really there is, there is no end to the possibilities when you start seeing this as a proper three-dimensional space. When I was just starting in my horticultural career, I went to work for a person who was then amongst the very richest people in the country. And I say this with a slight proviso, which was that he wasn't very often in the country. He was an international oligarch who had put some millions into a property in London and hired us as a team of gardeners to create for him the best garden in London, better than the Queen's. And this was our brief. We worked for a man we never saw. We never even saw his second in command. We saw the third or fourth layers of hangers-on who came and gave us very strange instructions about the garden. And they would say to us, you say you want to buy trees, but we have trees. Look, tree, 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 tree. And point at these strange, wonky, half-fallen-over things. And we would try to explain that these really weren't quite the thing that they were looking for. These weren't quite the things that they would have at Buckingham Palace, for example. And they would sign off. Yes, you have unlimited money, but you must buy us the best trees in London. And of course, we couldn't do that. It was impossible because the best trees in London aren't the ones that you can order from a tree nursery in Germany or Italy or anywhere else. The best trees in London are the ones that you wander past that have been growing in someone's garden for 80 years. The perfect magnolia that has formed itself into a lattice, into a, almost a cube within a garden of glorious grey stems. And they just don't work. You can't dig them up and transport them. They don't fit on the slow lane of a motorway like some of those tessellating trees, like the, the liquid ambers you can buy mature do. The best trees in London are the ones that grew there, the ones that have been moulded to the architecture, moulded to the people who are living there. And I think it's quite nice, quite reassuring that they 
simply cannot be purchased. There is no way to get things as beautiful as there are on any street into the gardens of the wealthy, no matter how much they pay for them. And as we come to autumn and the nights start drawing in and we start wondering if we're going to lose the greenery in our lives, front gardens are just a lovely little daily reminder that nature is still there. Nature is waiting, even if it isn't out. I always think in the, the bleakest days when you've just lost the leaves and even the red of the Boston ivies have faded from the front gardens. It's only a couple of weeks then until you start noticing people's little snowdrops coming up. There is always life in these gardens around us. Even if our garden at home, which might not have the same variety of plants, is completely bare and denuded, there will be things growing in the streets about us. And I think that's quite a useful boost to the mood of a gardener who is looking at a lot of cold and rain. Thanks, Ben. As you might expect, someone in my position loves walking along the streets and gazing at what people have done in their front gardens. You can see beautiful plants in there and you can see bits of garden history. There's a garden down my street on the way to the station where the owner has planted evergreen dwarf azaleas. These were incredibly popular back in the 60s and 70s and I would guess they were planted then and they produce the most marvellous flower in spring. Other people are obviously rosarians and they filled their garden with roses. Another person has made an alpine garden in their front garden. They've made a raised bed and it's full of some really good plants. And all these things are a joy to see. They're very good for the environment, they're good for wildlife and they're good for shelter. And all this greenery is good for people's well-being. Well, I think we've given you plenty of ideas for some gardening you can be getting on with this week. This is my easy time. All I do now is I sit back and wait for the allotment to grow. In a couple of weeks, I'll be harvesting apples and potatoes, but for now I can just sit back and watch everything grow. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. 
With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.